just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of Money Management. My name is Mike Mail. I'm with the Opus 111 Group. And we're all set to bring you another hour of financial news, a recap of what's been going on in the economic world, and most importantly, how it all can affect you. Now, if you have a question, concern, topic you'd like us to talk about on the air, and you can ask for attribution or not, please drop me a line at an email at uh, info at opus, O-P-U-S, 111 group.com. That's info at opus, 111 group.com. Now, we had a... We had a pretty good week going until yesterday, uh, and we'll talk about the reason for that in just a minute. But the losses uh, basically trimmed the gains for what started as a pretty good comeback week. And even after yesterday, the Dow still wind up uh, high up 2% for the week, and the S&P up 1.5% for the week, and the NASDAQ was even up 1%. So not a total loss in that regard. But, uh, you know... It, let me tell you where the indices actually ended yesterday. The Dow closed lower by 630 points at 29,296. S&P closed at 3639. The Nasdaq finished trading at 10,652. The Russell 2000 closed the week at 1702. And just coincidentally, the gold price settled at $1,702 an ounce. We had silver at 2017 an ounce. Crude closed at 92.70 a barrel, a great week for the oil prices, uh, as uh, the OPEC uh, announced they would cut oil production by 2 million barrels per day. And uh, the 10-year Treasury was last bid at 3.88%, and soft white wheat slipped again down to 9.20 a bushel. So, well, before I get into this, I, I need to... Ha- give you an aside you know the markets are down they've been down for the week or excuse me you know most of the year uh and folks say well gee you know i have to take these rmds can i postpone it you know because the balances are down the shorter answer is no and the shorter answer is no you don't want to do that because there's big penalties for missing an rmd uh it's not worth it to you i mean it you know it's unfortunate that the values are down but you know, you get to take it out. You can reinvest it in a taxable account and hopefully see some gains in there. But please understand, you have to take the RMDs, okay? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, in that light, or on that light, let's talk about the jobs report. You know, there is uh, an adage on, in New York that says, good news is bad news. And that's what we saw yesterday. Because we had a solid report on the labor market. There's no sign of any recession anywhere on the horizon or imminent. Um, Non-farm payrolls, that's what they call it, the the job report. 263,000 folks were added. And civilian employment, that includes small business startups, rose another 204,000. So, yeah, it's strong no matter what. The weakest part, however, was uh, the labor force was shrinking by 57,000 folks. So the increase in civilian employment combined with the slippage in the labor force, created a national unemployment rate at 3.5%. That's the lowest level since the economic expansion of 2009 to 2020. And the lowest level 
straight out since 1969, so significant. Now, another sign of continued strength in the labor market is the share of voluntary job leavers, let's call them quitters, uh, among the unemployed reached 15.9%, the highest since 1990. That suggests there's jobs out there for them to have. Now, this jobs number is the last employment report before the next Fed meeting in early November, and barring some unexpectedly good news on inflation, and by the way, we will get a report on inflation next Thursday, this particular report looks likely to lock the Fed into raising interest rates by another 75 basis points, that's three quarters of a percent in American, uh, at the uh, next November meeting. Now, other than more jobs, what does today's report mean for workers? Well, total wages increased in September, up 8.6% from a year ago. So total wages are beating inflation, but uh, workers are working more hours. So then if the news was good, why'd the market drop? Well, mechanically, uh, (laughs) when you're selling and there's no bids, you know, people are hesitant. They don't want to step up and buy whatever it is you're selling. The bids keep dropping. The prices just keep dropping from the weight of their own. There's no. That's why they say uh, volume is the friend of the bull. So if there's heavy trading volume, you're likely going to see markets trading up. But in this case, they weren't going up. The job market strength uh, suggests, again, the Fed will keep tightening rates uh, at the 0.75% level. Now, higher rates are not good for many, though not all market sectors. But they're particularly hard on big tech growth stocks, as well as utilities, which have been trading near their lows all year anyway. Utilities are rate sensitive in that they use cash a lot, and the higher rates equal higher costs. So uh, you have to be careful that, uh, you know, the, the share price, which almost all of them are down this year. Uh, matter of fact, the Vista hit a, a an annual low yesterday at 36.32. Uh, it had been, this year too was also its high at about 47 dollars a share. So that's a that's one of the effects of uh, uh, the increase in interest rates pushing down the share price. And if, because utility shares are generally not considered growth type issues. So it's strictly a function of what the dividend is. So you don't want to be too heavily involved in those kinds of issues because uh, they're pretty restrictive. And unless you see interest rates starting to move lower, there's little chance for any growth in those particular shares. So I believe the last time we had a bad stock market was almost 15 years ago. I also think that has a lot to do with people's perceptions that the world is ending now, Um, you know, because they aren't used to this. They haven't seen uh, a a snaky market. I don't know if snaky market is anywhere in the approved MBA programs, but that's how the people in the business refer to it. In any case, uh, you know, they got washed out in the third quarter. I mean, stocks did, right? And... This year, too, may be on the record books for more than just the size of the losses. It's also on record that all types of bond funds have declined together in the same year for the very first time. That's according to Morningstar. And they have 20 taxable bond categories in the negative territory. And they said it's been the most volatile bond market going back to the 90s. As a matter of fact, in 1994, we had both the stock and bond market lower. So... 
There is precedent for it, but it doesn't happen very often. And the most extreme losses come from those funds that invest in bonds with longer maturities. Read that as something more than 10 years. And you can check your maturities in your funds <coughs> Excuse me, by going to the website and looking up your fund. It'll tell you what the average <coughs> maturity of your portfolio is. And so, you know, the yield on the three-month treasuries is up by more than three and a quarter percentage points. That's the greatest increase in nine months in any full year going back to 1981. So, you know, this is pretty unusual stuff. <laughs> we got here an unusual method, and they're trying to, quote-unquote, fix it in unusual method. So it's a learning experience all the way around. Just for instance, the one-month treasury uh, currently yields 2.96%. In the beginning of the year, it was 0.05%. That's a huge jump. So whether you've looked at prices or people's reactions to those prices, it's hard to find much positive to say other than things are so bad they're actually good. Now that may sound a little silly and that I may be, how I say, <laughs> uh, using something uh, to uh, come up with some very strange conclusions, but they're pretty straightforward because the riskier stocks feel, the less risky they are over time. And because sometimes stocks fall a lot, sometimes they fall some more. So you can't really be too 100% sure of what's going on with these guys all the time. That's why they're called risk assets, not guaranteed assets. Now, Bloomberg said that uh, a historically high 52% of professional money managers said they're underweight stocks. 62% are overweight cash. 200, that's 212 participants managing $616 billion. And the stock market hasn't even made new lows, so uh, hardly a bullish perception. The Bloombergs reported that these professional money managers are uh, not anywhere close to being bullish. Uh, and they're not the Lone Ranger by any stretch. The AAII sentiment poll, that's the American Association of Individual Investors, recently hit 60% bearish. And history has said the more pessimistic individual investors become, the better the perspective looks, better perspective returns look six months out. You know, it's almost as though recent market activity has the ability to completely shift the mood of investors. Yes, it's as though people actually become more optimistic after making a bunch of money and then for some reason fall into despair upon giving some of those gains up. Who'd believe it? You know, by the way, stocks seem to be pricing in endless interest rate hikes as far as the eye can see. Inflation that will simply never go down. A collapse in the capital markets due to more expensive money. A wave of defaults and an epidemic of earnings cuts, layoffs, crashing home prices and energy shortages. I don't think I forgot anything. I don't know. They may be right, but I'm betting the other way. I have historical perspective on my side, but anyhow, things can get worse, as, but rarely as bad as the worst of your imaginations can create. And at the market turn, the individuals or institutions of whatever size will emerge even stronger than before this particular crisis. Why is that, Mike? Well, because they'll have kept a cool head and made good decisions, not emotional ones. Now, we hold it true that not everyone's going to emerge uh, unwounded, if you will, uh, let alone in an even better position. 
You know, you have to focus on the things you can control. Now, right, think about this. You get to decide what you focus on. When it comes to investing, it means you have a choice. You can tune into the Financial Pornography Network. By the way, that's within our business. We kind of refer to uh, all the financial media, what would I say, channels and one things or another under that catch-all category because, you know, it's like the uh, Supreme Court decision said, you know pornography when you see it? Okay, well, from a financial sense, so do we. So go through, you know, we've seen those folks go through the endless cycles of bye-bye, sell-sell, with, of course, the current apocalypse du jour uh, while running through all the emotions that come with it. Or, instead of tuning into those people, you can focus on what actually matters when it comes to investing. That's time. Multiple years. If you choose to focus on daily market moves, you're basically signing up to make yourself crazy. Miserable. For no good reason. There's no reason to do that day to day. It gives you no insights, I assure you. Now, on the other hand, when it comes to investing, you'll actually get rewarded for ignoring all this daily noise. Morgan Housel, uh, he's, a, he's a great writer, um, says in his book, The Psychology of Money, and I'm quoting, Warren Buffett is a phenomenal investor, but you miss a key point if you attach all his success to investing acumen. His skill is investing, but his secret is time, unquote. And you, <laughs> what Mr. Buffett said, and I'm quoting him, he says, benign neglect, bordering on sloth, remains the hallmark of our investment process, unquote. I don't think that sounds like a guy whose nose is in the screen watching CNBC all the time. So remember, you actually have a choice, days or years. What's it going to be? Now, here's some uh, thoughts from some uh, market folks around the country about current market situation. Market Mark Hackett, sorry, Mark, chief of investment research at Nationwide, he says, quoting, Universal pessimism is bullish from a contrarian's perspective, though timing of the pendulum swing is difficult to predict. That is a that true thing. Now, Mark Hayfley, chief investment officer at UBS Global Wealth Management, says, and again I'm quoting, after falling more than 9% in September and extending its year-to-date decline to nearly 25% as of last Friday's close, not yesterday, but a week ago, we think the S&P 500 was looking oversold. With sentiment towards stocks already very weak, that's an understatement, periodic rebounds are to be expected, but markets are likely to stay volatile in the near term, driven primarily by expectations around inflation and policy rates. I'd say that's a fair call, Mark. Credit Suisse, they say the recovery isn't over yet, and I'm quoting from most folks. Didn't know I spoke French, did you? The S&P 500 has held support from the price gap from Wednesday morning through the broader, though, and although, I can read, see, I told you I could read French, and although our broader outlook stays negative, we continue to look for deeper but still corrective rally to emerge prior to this broader downtrend resuming. I'm sure that means something good. Now, Ryan Dietrich, he's chief market strategist at Carson Group. Ryan says, we think this could be the start of a pretty decent end-of-year rally. Now, that's because traditionally stock market performance improves in October in midterm election years. And speaking of midterm elections, this is one I hear a lot of questions about. 
How does the market react to a midterm e election? Well, the market's reaction to an election may differ in the short term than in the long term. For example, in the first three months following all the midterm elections since 1962, the market fell approximately one quarter of the time. In three of the four instances, 2002, 2014, 2018, control flipped to the other party in either Senate, House, or both. But by six and 12 months after every midterm election since 1962, the market was positive, regardless of who won congressional seats. The market is agnostic when it comes to political parties. The point is that even with tough economic backdrop entering midterm elections, we take comfort in knowing that in the past, the market has delivered strong, positive returns within just a few months. And see, while we're solely focused on electing politicians for Congress and local governments this midterm, the economy, for the most part, is still in the hands of the Federal Reserve. Now, the Fed has perhaps the most def decisive influence over spending, borrowing, and saving, more so than does the Congress. So how does the Fed influence the economy? Well, primarily through monetary policy in terms of raising or lowering interest rates. And it can also partially increase or decrease money in circulation, known as the money supply, to help slow or speed up economic activity. Now, the market hates uncertainty. I've mentioned that many times. You know, the, these guys will react well when the world is ending or if happy days are here again, that's good too. But uncertainty, oh no, we can't have that. And around elections, political posturing, and let's face it, helped by the stirring of the media, can create market uncertainty. So, once election winners are declared, uncertainty tends to dissipate and calm can resurface. That's good news. That means that over the long term, in our opinion, your money should not be at the mercy of Washington politics. And I would read that as Washington, the state or Washington, the D.C., either one. Now, following the 2008 market drop, many people swore off the stock market forever to their chagrin. I put the two chagrin. That was my own thinking there. But in any case, people began to believe, and seemingly are yet again, that the market was a roller coaster casino with odds heavily stacked against them. I don't know how they come up with that. They're missing the fact that markets and economies are always and forever cyclical. That is to say, they go up and down and up and down. And the downturns are just as happy, excuse me, are just happen to feel more painful. I mean, come on. It's no fun seeing the numbers go down. It, that's, that's totally normal. You can always count on the certainty of uncertainty regarding any investment class. You never know exactly what you're going to get out of that. Yeah, well, dang it. Well, as we approach our next break, remember, we're always just an email away. If you've got questions, comments, or a thought you'd like to pass along, drop me a line at info at opus, O-P-U-S, 111group.com. Info at opus111group.com. We're talking about the cyclicality of the markets and how people, well, they think this is some sort of casino. Uh, sorry, that is not the case. Now, 
each sell-off in a market depends, not mean, depends, sorry, means something different to the individual investor. It all has to do with how long they've been in the market. Now, if you're a new investor who just put money in the S&P for the first time ever at the beginning of this year, your investment's down probably around 10%. But if you put money back in, excuse me, if you put money in back in January last year, you'd still be up 14% despite the sell-off. Even if you put money in in February 2020, before the market began to drop due to all the lockdown foolishness, you'd be up 27%. What ha- if you think about it, the further back you go in time to do this quote-unquote research, the more you'll see the stock market has only traded at even lower levels. So putting that another way, the longer you've been invested in the market, the greater the odds that you'll still have significant gains despite big sell-offs like what we're experiencing now. That's why time in the market is so important. Not timing. You don't know when it's going to go up or down. Who knows? You know, now that the markets have pulled back a tad, your money is able to work harder even though your investments are on autopilot. Yeah, it's true. Absolutely. The money you've already invested is worth something less. However, the money you're investing today, whether it's in your 401k or IRA or individual regular accounts, well, it will be worth more in the future. That's why you need to continue this 401 contributions. Do not stop. I remember in 08, a lot of people were cutting back, oh, the market's down, I can't put money in. So they don't want to buy it low. They'll wait till it's higher. That's welcome to human nature, I guess. So bear markets are no fun. Let the record reflect. But this is where all the best long-term returns come from. The dollars you invest on the way down will be worth more on the way back up. This is that buy low part you've heard about. Now, the unanswerable questions right now are as follows. And even your humble and obedient servant is incapable of answering these questions. How much worse will things get? How much of this is already priced into the stock market? And how bad could an economic slowdown affect stocks going forward? I don't know the answers to those questions. I do know this. Buying stocks when there is the proverbial blood in the streets is generally a fine idea, historically speaking. And here's perhaps one of the most important things. Every single bear market in the history of U.S. stocks, not just since 1962, not since 1926, whatever, in the history of U.S. stocks, has resolved to new all-time highs. Every single one. So, maybe one of these days, the financial system will completely implode. And then maybe the stock market will too. As I said earlier, there's no certainties with this stock stuff. That's why they're called risk assets, not guaranteed returns. But, if you don't believe in stocks for the long run, what's the point of investing in the first dang place? You know, until proven otherwise, I will continue to view downturns as opportunities, not cataclysmic events. Now, understand that every bear market has two things in common. One, we've alluded to already, they end. And two, expected returns go up. Now, the first thing is, you know, pretty obvious, I think. The second thing should be obvious, but 
from my talks with investors all over the place, I found that it's most certainly not obvious to most folks. Expected returns are rising as stock prices fall. It's a simple way of saying that investors only get paid for what stocks might do in the future. You don't get anything for what a stock has already done. And history tells us that as stock prices go lower, both in absolute terms as well as relative to their valuations, <coughs> excuse me, the opportunities to make money prospectively increase. You know, it can certainly feel as though the opposite is true. Losses can make you believe that additional losses are more likely and the presence of some risk puts us all on high alert for the possibility of more risk. That's one of those human nature things. You know, it's all baked into our wiring. So, uh, you know, that saber-toothed tiger dis disguised as a stock trader is coming after you. You know, it's... You also know that buying low, selling high is the best strategy for investing in anything. Stocks, real estate, bonds, picket, uh, whatever. Buying low means taking less risk that the investments you're making will be bad ones. This particular investment mm, that you make may not appreciate in price, but the better of a valuation you can buy it for, the less risk you have that it will go substantially lower. So buying stocks when prices are falling is both less risky and carries with it a higher probability of eventually making you money. <coughs> Excuse me. At the current level of about 3600 on the S&P 500, the risk isn't that it's going to go to 3100 per Roy DeLeo. He's a market guy. I'll just call him that for now. Uh, with you in it. The risk is that it's going to go to 6100 as one day it probably will, with you still out of it, because you were holding on for the bottom, and then you missed it, and then froze when the market took off. That always happens. And as it, 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 that the market soars coming out of major troughs. Remember the V-shaped recovery that we had in 08 and 09? Yeah, that was a straight-up deal. We also know that stocks have tended to come rocketing out of that trough on about the same trajectory as their last leg down. Look at any record of the market's best days over the last 50 years, and you'll see that they cluster in the immediate aftermath of major troughs. In an environment like that, which is to say like today's, the risk of holding cash goes up significantly. Now, here are some points you, I believe you should be considering in this market. The risk of holding cash has simply become too high. You're never going to catch the bottom. No one ever does. And you deserve to stop worrying about that. If you're holding any significant cash for any serious long-term goal, this is this time to start putting it to work. You don't have to do it in one lump, but start putting it to work. It's like dollar cost averaging back into the market if you need to. Uh, the massively universal bearishness can't be right for very long. When everybody goes to one side of that investing boat, as the way they have now, that boat's going to capsize. Now, no one knows when, where, why, how the current market decline ends. But history tells us if you don't get a 20% off sale more than about every mm, five years or so. So once again, there's precedent for it, but don't be thinking that it's long-term happening. Now, if you invest and the market goes down 20%, 
You may regret that for a matter of months. If the market runs away from you and you freeze, you'll end up regretting it for the rest of your life. By far, the most powerful emotion in investing is that of long-term regret. The shoulda, coulda, woulda school of investing. Uh, in my world, you get to hear that once or twice when you're talking with folks. Jay, I meant to or should have, could have, whatever. That's part of having a plan and a strategy and sticking to it no matter what the silly market is doing day to day. Now, I want to uh, end uh, with some words on inflation. Yeah, inflation. It's a hidden tax. You won't see it on any statements. It won't show up anywhere except in terms of your buying power and your ability to, well, buy the same amount of stuff for the same amount of money. That's going to change with inflation. Now, interest rates don't determine inflation. Totally separate. The amount of money circulating in an economy is what determines inflation. The money supply and the speed with which it moves around called velocity. And this is where the problem lies. You know, I've come to realize, this is again obviously my opinion, that the most important reason individual investors as well as the professional money managers, pundits, politicians are so confused about inflation and what it will take to destroy it is that they have no memory of the inflation recession nightmare that played out uh, between 1971 and 1982. That's when Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard. And then Paul Volcker, in 82, backed by Mr. Reagan, killed inflation dead for 40 years. And boy, that was a tough one. Um, that was a tough, high interest rates. And anyhow, it wasn't fun. The great companies of the U.S. and the world are on sale. That's what happens when they come down in price. They go on sale. And such as they have not been in more than a dozen years. I mean, that's, that's a pretty significant selling point, I think. Now, we can't predict how deep the markdowns will ultimately go, nor are such things of interest to the goal-focused, plan-driven, lifetime investor. Probably depends on the outcome of the struggle between monetary tightening and inflation, which there's no way to forecast. Inflation is cancer. If recession is the chemotherapy required to destroy it, some people are saying, bring it on. But regardless, stand by your plan. Stand by your strategy. Everything else is commentary. The long-term risk of holding cash, as I alluded to before the break, has spiked in these last six weeks, as had the intrinsic value of those great companies. Price and value are always and everywhere inversely related. In other words, the... As one goes up, the other goes down, and so on. So this concept is entirely lost on human nature, which turns out to be the reason that uh, I believe uh, folks need help in making these kinds of decisions. Now, we've seen this movie before. Well, some of us have anyway. After a dozen years of this cancerous inflation, which peaked at 13% in 1980, you know, people are seeing the blues they would hear it like six or seven or eight, whatever the heck it is for uh, a month or two. This was multiple years. Paul Volcker's delivery engineered. <laughs> yes, it was the mother of all hard landings. The prime 
rate went to 20%. Unemployment, and again, you know, it was just at 3.5% yesterday. It peaked at 10%. But uh, inflation was killed with a stake through the heart. And then the S&P doubled in a year, tripled in five years, from August of 82 to August of 87. Now, with that in mind, I just want to repeat a point. If you deploy long-term cash now, and the stock market continues to decline, yeah, you'll probably experience some short to intermediate term regret. Angst. Angst is a good word. And if you continue to hold cash waiting for an all-clear signal, one fine day the market explodes higher, uh, like it did on August 17th, 82, when the market turned, I mean, it just turned on a dime that day. And in March 9, 2009, turned on a dime that day too. And you'll never catch up with it. And it's going to reject, again, as I said, the most powerful emotion in investing is long-term regret. Now, just to put all this in context, January 5th, 1970, the S&P closed at 76. And again, to refresh your memory, yesterday it closed at 36.39. Harry Truman said... History, the only new thing in the world is history you don't know. Now, the way to kill inflation isn't to kneecap the economy. It's to reduce the supply of money and increase the demand for it by raising interest rates. Well, Fed's already succeeded in doing that. There's no reason we need a recession to get inflation down, contrary to what the financial media would like you to believe. They have just really got that in their teeth. They are bound and determined to have a recession. And, in fact, a growing economy can actually help to bring inflation down by increasing the supply of goods and services. What a concept. Now, how monetary policy affects prices and inflation? Higher rates increase the demand for money and reduce the demand for borrowed money. People become much less anxious to own things when interest rates are high. It's better to hold on to your money than spend it. It's better to rent than buy, which is why rents are increasing along as housing prices are softening. Now, the S&P in, uh, ended 1969 at 92.06. As I write, again, the nine recessions later, and down nearly 20% from its peak earlier this year, the broad stock market today is up 40 times since then, 4-0 times. In terms of earnings, the S&P earned 610 in 1969, $6.10. The current Consensus earnings forecast for this full year is around $225. That is, earnings are also up pretty close to 40 times. Now, don't just slough this off because this is why stocks have gone up so much over these five uh, rather (laughs) interesting decades. Uh, They were moved up by their earnings. See, and have this tattooed on your hand. Earnings have always driven share values. They drive them up, they drive them down. But earnings are the key to the kingdom. Dividends, the dividend of the S&P 500 was $3.24. This year, the estimate is about $65. That's up 20 times. Now, we look at the final comparison here. Now, inflation, the consumer price index in 1969 was at 38 it's currently 297 and rising. Now look at that in relation to the previous number. When, what you see is cash dividend is up 20 times, cost of living up 8 times. Hmm. 
If you are experiencing any anxiety about how an investor's retirement income might historically keep up with and even outstrip increases in the cost of living, please consider having a conversation with me or some other high-powered, high-quality financial advisor about dividends. This can be the most important talk you have. Dividends have continuously outperformed. See, they're not fixed like a bond. That's the good and the bad news, but given that data relationship, that's the one way to protect yourself in this kind of environment. See, the issue here is simply perspective or history versus headlines. This isn't just the ultimate truth for investors about recessions. It's the ultimate truth for investors, period. The issue is always your perspective, and you get to choose your perspective. Now, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, I'll bend bend to the east here, the official arbiters of these things, there have been eight economic recessions since 1970, and now they well so let's call it they they're going to call this one nine because we've had two back-to-back gdps down by a fraction who knows but anyway nine recessions then the first of which actually started in december 69 it lasted uh, 11 months with gdp having contracted a mere six tenths of one percent but it lasted for two quarters and in those days it was good enough for it to count officially now you go back Use Wikipedia's uh, service, excuse me, listing of these official recessions. And as you do, remember that the media reported each one as the end of economic life as we know it. And they're doing it again today. Uh, Just look at your financial news feed of choice this morning and you'll note they're essentially again recycling the same story as they have year in and year out. Those guys are not very bright in a lot of ways. You can mitigate the effect of inflation on your retirement savings by doing these things. Save more than you think you'll need. Don't be too conservative in your investments, except for any money needed for a specific use within a couple years should be very conservatively invested. Read that as money markets, uh, CDs, something very predictable so you know that money will be there. Again, don't be afraid to stick with mostly stocks. Despite the fact that they can be volatile and there can be potential losses, stocks have historically offered you the best returns over time. These long-term gains will help you outpace inflation so your retirement cash can stay on track. Think total return, growth, plus any dividends or interest, so your stock position can be thought of as building, building up future income. Well, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Money Management, powered by the Opus 111 Group. My name's Mike Mayo. I'd love to hear from you if you have a topic or a question on your mind. That's what this is all about. So email me, and I promise I'll respond either directly or on the show at info at opus111group.com. That's info at opus111group.com. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back again next week. Join us again next Saturday morning at the same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com. Money, money, money.